remarkable man of God. And uh, this week we're going to take a look at uh, on the brink of a lifestyle of worship. Or, you know, my favorite line, don't go to church to worship, bring your worship to church. Now, last week we learned that David's not a perfect man, right? Pastor Brent took us through a period in David's life where we just recognize that he is a sinner just like you and I. But there's an area in David's life that he had a lot of things settled. And it is in the area of worship, I believe. And so I'm hoping that this morning we're going to learn from David how... Perhaps if if you're on the brink of something new in your own worship life with the Lord, that you will take a next step by God's grace and see that worship is so much more than sitting right now in this room listening to a guy who's Puerto Rican and used to live in New York. It's so much more than that, right? So this is what we're talking about. I'm going to try and learn from uh, David and how to have a heart uh, like David when it comes to worship and understanding what worship means. So here's how we're going to tackle this topic. We're going to answer the question this morning, how important is worship in the life of a believer? You know, we tend to just kind of water down a lot of things in life. And if we don't think and reflect on it, something like worship can easily lose its preeminence in our lives and in the life of the church. So we're going to maybe seem like an obvious question, but the obvious ones often, you know, you got to spend some more time in. We're going to also look at Psalm 16 and just kind of study that Psalm to learn how David truly didn't go to church, didn't go to church to worship. He brought his worship to church. So if you want to turn to Psalm 16 and keep a finger there, that'd be great. There's notes in the back in those baskets. If you want to follow on there, lots of notes this morning, but you can find Psalm 16 and keep a finger there or a bookmark or whatever. We're going to be heading into Psalm 16. And as a result of our study, I'll give you a a definition of worship. My definition of worship is a definition. It's not the definition, but I hope you'll find it helpful. And then we're going to just hit on some practical matters regarding how how we can uh, maybe perhaps take that next step in our own crossroads in being a person that just doesn't come to church to worship, but has a lifestyle filled with worship. So let's answer the question, you know, how important is worship in the life of a believer by saying this, the Bible is a huge book. It's huge. I mean, how do you wrap your head around so many characters, nations, places, kingdoms, stories, poems, families, battles, prayers, atrocities, miracles, blessings, unspeakable sins, songs, evil, beauty, mercy, grace, and love, just to name a little of what you'll find in the Bible? How do you wrap your mind around this massive book that tells incredible stories? What is the hook that brings meaning all that we find in the scriptures. I believe that the Bible from beginning to end is a story about worship. Worship is the central issue of the Bible. So as we consider how important worship is in the life of the believer, let's take a quick survey of scripture because I think we're going to learn that indeed this is the core issue. Worship is the hook upon which you can hang all of the stories and events that you read in the Bible. We're going to start way over in Genesis this morning. Uh, This is from Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, reflect for a moment on this little detail that Moses gives us in Genesis 3. The sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Okay? This is where God gives us this thing we call imagination. 
And I think God calls us to exercise our imagination. So when I see a verse like this, I'm thinking, so a man and a woman in the same geographical location as the Lord God who created them, here, God walking in the garden. I mean, we just, I, I can see it in my brain, but I can't possibly conceive the impact and the meaning of this tiny detail that Moses is giving to us. They heard God walking on the earth. And I'm, I'm going to guess, there's no biblical reason I'm going to say this, but I'm going to guess and say that perhaps, perhaps, that this was not the first time that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of the Lord within the context of God as their creator and within the context of the word of God. God did not create other little gods. He created man and woman in his image. And for a time, they walked together in the garden. There was oneness in relationship. Imagination. This is the picture that we're given in Genesis 3. And so this relationship that we're, that we're introduced to in the scriptures, this is God's idea. He started it. And he defines the relationship. So he says to Adam and Eve, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God's word is life for Adam and Eve. His word was a clear path to life. And therefore, relationship with God. So what I want us to see and note here is that God is the great initiator. And we are continually in a position of response to him. Okay, This is fundamental to understanding how to incorporate a lifestyle of worship. We are continually, we don't initiate anything in this world, nor do we initiate anything in relationship to God. We are continually in a position of response. We enter into relationship with God according to his terms and in response to his initiative. In other words, there is a God and you are not him. Okay, right? There is a God and you are not him. Fundamental to understanding how do I walk with God in a lifestyle of worship? Well, fundamental to understanding that is that we are always responding to him as creator God who gives to us words of life, a clear path to life. This was true in the garden. This is true this very moment. The whole Bible presents a story that began in the garden. And the story began with this question. Listen, will God's people respond to God's initiative and respond to God's word with obedience as an expression of worship, or will God's people disobey his commands and live life on their own and act, if you will, like little gods who know so much better than their creator? That's the issue that we see first introduced in Genesis 3. So let's quickly walk through the Bible with panoramic kind of scope and see how the rest of the scriptures deal with this issue of worship. Is man going to respond to God as creator, worship him, or is mankind going to disobey and do life 
on his and her own. So as we look at the scriptures, we see this panoramic view of how worship is the central issue. These five books in the Pentateuch, worship, beginnings, and foundations, these five books contain the basic principles of God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. The giving of the law of Moses establishes the boundaries and all the guidelines for man who was sinful to learn how to worship and relate to God who is holy. So the Pentateuch presents this entire system in order for man to understand how to relate and respond to God's initiative and offer of relationship. And the collective story of the redemption of Israel from slavery and bondage becomes the center of this nation's identity. And perhaps there's nowhere else in all of the Old Testament where the issue of worship is paramount and kind of becomes the heart of what God is trying to communicate to people than we find in Exodus 20, where we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath. Or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. These are clear words meant to give life to you and to me. Now, look at the historical books. In the historical books, we see the, the story of the nation, the community of God's people as they follow Joshua, Judges, the kings. We also see the story of the nation of Israel taken off into exile and returning back. From exile, And we see time and time again, God's people, they respond in obedience and receive the blessing of God's presence, the blessing of his redemption and protection. And we see time and time again, God's people in rebellion. They forget the story of redemption and freedom from bondage. They let go of that story. And the result is slavery in their souls in their hearts, and disorder in the heart of mankind. And when there is disorder in the heart of man, the result is disorder in the family. And that results in disorder in the community. And that results in disorder in the culture. And that results in disorder in virtually every aspect of the culture. Religious, political, economic, and the list goes on and on, and on. And this is what we see in the culture today. Disorder in the heart of man, okay, resulting in disorder in every system we see around us. Systems are people. And so if there's disorder here, this is order, disorder in systems. And in the scriptures, in these historical books, there's a verse that we learn the key component of what God continues to communicate to his people, that worship is a matter of the heart. So in 1 Samuel 15, we read these words. What is more pleasing to the Lord? What's more pleasing to God? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. What he's saying is obedience is better than going to the 8 o'clock service at Monaco Bible Church. Obedience is better than singing those songs that the worship team's going to lead, than taking the bread and the cup and just going through the stuff that you go through when you end up at 412 North. We've been at Adam, Manuka, Manuka, Illinois, 60447. It's a matter of here, okay, of the heart. 
So, you know, the statement that I love to make has existed forever. He might as well say, don't go to the altar of sacrifice to worship. Bring your worship to the altar of sacrifice. It's essentially what's being communicated here. So in the historical books, we learn this important principle. The forms of worship, its rituals, and all of its systems must be connected to the heart of the believer. Otherwise, it's not acceptable to God. It simply is not acceptable to him. It's not what he desires. The forms of worship, its rituals and systems must be connected to the heart of the believer And so continuing on, as we look through the Old Testament, we have the poetical books, Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and I like to call this worship in high definition. No more 1080p, this is 4K worship, so round sound, 97 speakers all over the place, you know? So we look at um, Job, and we learn from Job how to turn to God in submission and obedience, a sovereign God turning to him in the midst of unimaginable loss, unimaginable struggle and grief. In the Psalms, we are taught to bring it. And by that, I mean bring everything to God as an expression of worship. High death, we bring our sorrow, our delight, our joy, our pain, our confession. In the Psalms, we see every single emotion expressed as worship and praise to God. Through the wisdom of Proverbs, we find practical ways to live out the words of life that God has been giving to us since the beginning, since the dawn of time. In Ecclesiastes, we see a philosopher struggling to make sense of all of this thing we call life. And his conclusion is the true heart of a worshiper. The true heart of a worshiper is realizing that to fear God, to keep his commandments remains the center of what God desires in the life of a worshiper. And here's a definition of to fear God that that I wrote as I was studying this past week. To fear God is to give God the attention of your mind, the passion of your heart, and the heartache of your suffering. Now, if in my life, what tends to happen, maybe this is true for you, is we get good at one, maybe two of these. Okay? We get good at giving God the attention of our mind. And we love learning and growing and studying. And that is awesome. But we're not, not so good at perhaps giving God the passion of our heart. Okay? Or we give God all of our heartache and our suffering. Perhaps even bordering on the line at times of complaining or being demanding. But we're not giving God our mind. We're not studying the scriptures to see how others who've gone before us respond to God's offering of relationship and obedience regardless of circumstance. To fear God is to give God the attention of our mind, the passion of our heart, and the heartache of your suffering. All of those growing in measure is what it means to to fear God. So continuing on through the Old Testament, we have the prophetic books, the prophets. Worship twisted and torn, but hope remains. The prophets continue to communicate what? The word of God. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord said, hear the word of the Lord. On and on and on, over and over again, the prophets point. God's people who are now wayward, who are falling and stumbling, they continually point God's people, look, this is the word of the Lord. In other words, you can have life again. You can have life again. Hear the word of the Lord. The prophets also say judgment is coming. 
Because God not only promises blessing and his presence, he also promises curses for those who walk away from him, who turn and worship false gods and false idols. There is impact and consequence to living life like that. So the prophets offer the word of life. They offer the word of warning. Punishment is coming. Judgment is coming. And they also offer the word of hope. And the promise of restoration, which we see in the New Testament. Worship restored. Hearts made new in Jesus the Messiah. The angels sang. The wise men worshiped. The shepherds bowed down. Mary sings her song. The disciples sang a hymn after the Last Supper. And the word, we're told, became flesh. Okay? Follow this. The word of God came to Adam and Eve to give them life. The word became alive. The word became a living word walking on this earth, speaking. Jesus spoke words of life. The living word spoke words of life. Always coming back to God's word that gives us life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And through his death, resurrection, we can have life. Our hearts are restored. The promise and hope of the Old Testament prophets, something is going to happen in the heart of mankind that's new, is fulfilled in Jesus. So we don't go to church to worship. We bring our worship to church, much like David did in Psalm 16. So we're going to walk through Psalm 16. Just one psalm, obviously, among many, that I think will help us to see how David, in his worship life, not only got to the brink of a lifestyle of worship, but truly lived that out, not in a perfect way, but he continued to grow in understanding how important that worship was in his heart, how important worship was in the heart of God for his people. So in Psalm 16, follow along, we read, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, we don't know why David is seeking refuge. We don't know why he needs to be safe. We'll talk about it in a minute as to, you know, a possibility. But nonetheless... He is going to God because he already understands that within God there is safety. So he's just telling telling God, I'm going to go to you, Lord, because I know beyond the shadow of doubt, that is where I'm safe. And therefore I run to you. And then he says these words, uh, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. See, for David, everything good in his life, everything good in his life was measured against the goodness and the presence of the Lord. He had this settled in his life and in his heart, okay? There was a lot of good in his life. There's a lot of good in our lives. But all of that is measured against the presence of the Lord. He understood that there was nothing, nothing good in his life compared with the Lord. And so in your notes, the greatest enemy of God's presence in your life is all the good in your life. I mean, we can list all kinds of things, right? Some, I mean, even if we're going through difficult circumstances and trying times, that old hymn is so true. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Even in the midst of some of the deepest, darkest struggles, I've been able to find something. God, this is a good thing in my life. But when it comes to on the brink of a lifestyle of worship, we learn from David that the greatest enemy of God's presence in your life is the good in your life. Paul understood this. He writes, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, I consider them rubbish, garbage, 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Do you have that settled in your heart? What is the good in your life that may be keeping you from God's presence in your life? Okay, going on in Psalm 16, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Now, David's delight in his fellow believers, those who he would see as following hard after God, following God, delighting in his word, David's delight in his fellow believers is not above or in competition with his supreme delight in God, okay? But he does have another matter settled in his life as a person who understands that worship is a matter of the heart. And he needs to live a lifestyle of worship. And I'm going to put it this way. This is what he has settled. Show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. That was one of my mom's favorite sayings. And it stuck in my heart. And mom was right. And all the moms in the room said, amen. Show me your friends and I will tell you who you are. Mom was spot on, as they say across the Atlantic. The power and impact that the people you welcome into your life is immeasurable. We don't really realize how those who we call friends, those who we welcome into the fabric of our lives, they have an impact in life that's hard to measure, but it is huge, to use an old Hebrew word. (laughs) And David understood that in terms of worship lifestyle, That it's not just coming here, it's not just coming to a service, it's not just going to the tabernacle. He needs to surround himself with people who will help him see the value of keeping God at the center of life, of seeing God as his highest good. In the book of Hebrews, we see these words, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together or some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Does that verse describe the kind of people you have in your life? When you're around your friends, do you leave the company of your friends and are you encouraged to be a more loving person? When you're in the company of your friends and you leave the company of your friends, are you encouraged to be a person that is about doing good deeds in the name of Jesus the Lord? A lifestyle of worship includes maintaining relationships that will encourage this heart to seek God first in all things, to become a person that's filled with love, to become a person that does not tire of accomplishing good deeds for the sake of others. This is part of what it means to worship our Lord as a lifestyle. Is that settled in your heart? Going on in Psalm 16, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. This is Exodus 23, settled and done in real time. You shall have no other gods before me. I think in this area, David was just not on the brink of a lifestyle of worship. This was the heart of David. I mean, just listen to what he just... And, you know, understand, in David's culture, this is countercultural. As Israel struggled, passionately running after false gods, David's commitment remained strong, and it couldn't have been easy. Because all across the land, there was fear and struggle. There were those who would run away from Jehovah and run after false gods. So this wasn't, this wasn't what was cool in David's time. Okay? But it was settled in his heart. Now, you know... 
you might say, well, Carlos, we don't worship idols. I don't, there's no golden calf in my trunk or, you know, backyard. Come on. This is Manuka, for goodness sake. Okay? We're modern Christians. You know, whatever. Here's, here are Paul's words in Colossians 3. Paul says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then Paul says this, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You know, it's always a matter of the heart. In Paul's culture, in David's culture, in our culture, there are all kinds of opportunities to engage in idol worship here in our hearts. And how about you? Do you stare at idols of one kind or another? The idols that the culture offers up. You know, the problem with staring at idols is that they make us blind to the pain and destruction they cause because of the instant but vanishing pleasure they provide. Okay, we could spend a whole message on, on this reality. Because idol worship is a struggle for you and for me from time to time. And you know what? Often it's the good things, you know. Oh, he's a hardworking fellow, hardworking woman. You know, really successful, doing well. But all the while, that job, that career is actually an idol. Okay? Did you know that family can be an idol? Good things in life can take the place of the presence of the Lord. Okay? And sometimes there are subtle things, but there are things we need to pay attention to in our own heart, in our own life. And David understood how important this was, and so did the New Testament. So that's why Paul says it's important to die to these things, to die to self, because we're prone to staring at things that we think are good and not even realizing that our soul is being destroyed because of the instant but vanishing pleasure that idols can provide. So let's continue on. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You know, I didn't choose the family that I was born into. I didn't, I didn't get the opportunity. I didn't have someone come up to me and say, Carlos, would you like to be born into Wilfredo Garcia's family? That's my dad's name, Wilfredo Garcia. Or would you like to be born into David Jankowski's family? Pick one. I didn't have that opportunity. Now, knowing now what I know about genetics and hair loss, I might have chosen David Jankowski's family because his, his hair is awesome. He's the guy in that book at Fantastic Sands that you look through when you're waiting. How cool do I want to look? That guy, David Jankowski, is probably in that book, okay? But I didn't get to choose that, okay? God and his benevolence and his love and his sovereignty put me into Wilfredo Garcia's family, and I'm so glad. I had an opportunity to spend some time with my parents last week. My mom's 90. She took a bad fall a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no serious injuries, but it was awesome being back with them and just loving on them. So that's the family God put me in. That's the circumstance of my life, and all the rest of the stories you know, flow from it from the time I came to the earth. So we don't get to choose a lot of things in this life, okay? Um, Here's what we read in uh, Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
Now, you know, turn on your imagination and spend some time reflecting on, on that verse. Okay, you knit me together in my mother's room. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Have you received the Lord as your portion, whatever your circumstance? This isn't easy in life, is it? It's not. Our circumstances can change. Our circumstances can be so difficult, weigh us down, nearly crush us, because I've been there. But David, in his lifestyle of worship, continually recognized that in God, his cup and his portion is full. He has all that he needs in the presence of the Lord. It's not dependent on circumstances. Okay? Again, this is not easy. Not an easy thing to do in our struggle, you know, walking with the Lord. But for David, we're given this wonderful example that even in the midst of our story, which at times can be so hard, and you may be there today, it is possible to, to praise the Lord. Praise is possible if you set him before you, even when all, when everything falls around you. Praise is possible if you set him before you, even when everything. Oh, I didn't fix that. This should say when, not what. Even, even what everything falls around you. <laughs> even when everything falls around you. You know, David says, I have set him before me. And you have this picture of David having God right here in front of him, you know. And we put all kinds of things before us, don't we? Sometimes we put our past. We put our past right before us. And that's all we see. And that's what directs the course of our life. Okay, and our disconnect with God and others. Sometimes we put right before us our achievements how awesome we are, <laughs> you know? And that's what guides our life. Our talents, our abilities, that's right before us. We are all that, okay? In early in ministry, that was my story. Pats on the back for people, oh, you're such a great worship pastor. I know, because I'm all that, you know? That's who I am, forgetting God's story of redemption in my heart, okay? We are prone to put all kinds of things right before us and then define life according to it. And David said, I have set the Lord right here, right in front of me. And that defines everything. Circumstances be what they may. God is right here in front of me. And so I can receive these circumstances because God is sovereign. And in the darkness of the womb, he saw my unformed body. Amazing lifestyle of worship that he presents for us. Okay, let's continue on to this psalm. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David's sense of destiny is secure. And his sense of his destiny is connected to God who is sovereign and faithful David trusts that God will keep him even in death. David's heart is settled in this matter. And so he talks about his heart, his tongue, and his body. His heart is going after God. This matter of a lifestyle of worship, he's growing in. It's settled. He's going to pursue the Lord. So his heart is so full that it results in his tongue praising God. And not only that, he understands now that he can rest. This body can rest secure in the presence of the Lord. Not only now, but forevermore. It's a lifestyle of worship that goes way beyond walking 
on this earth. And so one preacher, I read his uh, take on the psalm. He said the reason David says at the beginning, oh Lord, in you I take refuge, I need to be safe in you, is because David had in his mind his concern about death. And so by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he's rejoicing and worshiping God because even in death, he can be safe and secure in the presence of the Lord. It's an expression of hope. You know, your understanding and my understanding of eternity is so critical, okay? It's so critical. Where you think you're going for eternity is where you're going today. This lifestyle of worship that David lived was so passionate towards the Lord that it, in, it, it instructed his heart and mind on what was to come. And then that was kind of the cycle. Since my heart is so set on responding to God's initiative for worship and for relationship, I respond in worship. My life is full. And now by faith, I trust that that same presence will be with me when this life is over. And of course, in Acts chapter 2, Peter uses this psalm, these words... And applies them to the resurrection of Jesus. Fulfilling what David is actually longing and hoping for by faith in this psalm. See, for David, worship is the central issue of his life. Just like worship is the central issue of the scriptures. And so, here's a definition of worship based on what we've been talking about this morning. That some Puerto Rican pastor made up, so I don't know how good it is. So, um, Christian worship is the process of steadily growing in seeing God and salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, as the single greatest source of pleasure in life. It's a definition. It's not the definition. But I think, especially in our culture, where, you know, there are so many things in my life and in your life that we seek because it's pleasurable. And we don't, I mean, we rarely talk. Have we ever talked about a theology of pleasure? Okay, then pleasure's not a bad thing. God invented it, which is awesome, okay? Pleasure's not a bad thing, but if we're going to reflect in our lives David's heart, David's lifestyle of worship, then I think this is a good way to think through what does worship as a lifestyle look like for you and for me? Are we really bringing our worship here by living like this? Christian worship is the process of steadily growing. We never finish this. This isn't a process that, you know, Tuesday, 2 o'clock, I'm going to have all this done. We're done. I'm done. I got it down. I move on. It's a lifestyle of, that's, you know, over the, the marathon of life, we're steadily growing. You know, I hate to say this, but look, as I get older, something like this makes more sense to me. I mean, you know, those of you who have been around the block, you know, a little bit longer than I have, I'm sure it will resonate. You know, you begin to see life in a totally different perspective. Okay, and you understand pleasures and joys in a different perspective. Because you, you kind of, mm, I see the end over there somewhere perhaps, you know. And now you, you turn around and you say, okay, what is pleasurable in this life? What is real in this life? What do I give myself to in this life? What is lasting in this life? Growing and seeing God and salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, is the single greatest source of pleasure in life, which will in turn help me think about what's to come. Okay, a couple of um, practical matters. Hang out with God. Five to ten minutes of silence and stillness. Now you're looking at me going, five to ten minutes of silence? Whenever that happens in my life, I nap. <laughs> you know? uh, and I do too. It's like, oh, I got some time. <sighs> Why don't you go, you know? The reason I chose this one is because of the mad pace of most of our lives and all my life, you know, and it's easy. You know, I got my devotions in, got that done, check, you know, that's in prayer time in, check, 
you know, on to the next thing. Let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, stuff to do, people to see, and all that. And so, uh, actually, I stole this from Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I get emails from him. And so he recommends, look, find five to ten minutes a day of stillness and silence. It's weird, isn't it? Because now you're like, why did he stop talking? He's just looking at us. Is his mouth broken? What's going on? Silence. And it's just bizarre. What if five to ten minutes a day you sat in silence before the Lord? And he suggests this. He just, you know, just say a prayer, a simple prayer over and over again. Okay, in your heart. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Or... Whatever, you know, whatever comes, Father, I am here, I am listening, will you speak? Father, I am here, I am listening, will you speak? What will happen is, because it happens to me, is your brain, ding, ding, you know, it's like bullets start ricocheting, I got to do this, I got to do that, you know. And when he says, if that happens, just quietly say that prayer again, just kind of bring it back. Five to ten minutes of silence just before the Lord. If you do it, let me know how it came out. But uh, that's a suggestion you know, for kind of maybe if you're at the brink of, yeah, you know, I do this worship thing at church and maybe I can, can in this crossroad now in life, maybe I can try some things that will help me bring my worship to church. Here's one suggestion. Okay, another one. Uh, hang out with the Holy Spirit. And that is hang out with God's word. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. It's huge. 176 verses. But it's all broken up into like seven or eight verses at a time. So it's in like bite-sized chunks, okay? And the entire psalm is about God's word. It's about God's precepts, God's law, if you will. It's all about the word of God. Entire psalm, 176 verses. So my suggestion is just read a section a day. And I guarantee you, you will learn more about the precious gold, the precious honey that God's word is and how it can impact our lives. Okay, and thirdly, hang out with God's people. Hang out with God's people. Small groups. Are you in a small group? Are you opening up your life to other believers? Are you in fellowship with others who will encourage you to pursue God as a lifestyle, not just on Sunday or Saturday? Are you, are you around people who encourage you to, to do good deeds for Christ in the name of Christ the Lord? Are those the people that you surround yourself with on a regular basis to spur you on to be a loving person who's interested in fulfilling Jesus' mission on this earth by being an ambassador for Christ. Hang out with God's people. If you're not already doing, doing it, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Brent. We'd love to see you in a small group in fellowship and community learning how to live out your life of faith. So I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. I'm going to switch mics, Chuck, so we can get uh, to this one. We're going to um, tell a story. We're going to tell a story. Just like the Israelites were told to remember the story of God's redemption, God's salvation, God releasing them from bondage to slavery. When we gather together around the Lord's table.